0: Psalm 129 or 120 tonight as we make our journey on Sunday nights through the scripture, Genesis to Revelation. If you're with us tonight, you don't have a Bible, men are coming up the aisles right now with Bibles. Just wave to them and get their attention and they'll get a Bible into your hands. And then please, if you don't own a Bible, we want everybody to own a Bible and just make that Bible a gift to you from the Lord tonight. Psalms 120 through 134 are known as the Psalms of Ascends. They were the songs that would be sung by Jewish pilgrims who would come not only from all over Israel but from all over the world to worship the Lord Uh, during the three great uh, feasts of the Jewish religious calendar, the Feast of Passover in the spring, uh, the Feast of Pentecost, uh, in late spring and early summer, and then the Feast of Tabernacles in the fall, typically lining up with our uh, October. As we would come from all around the world and they'd be making their way to Jerusalem. Oh, what a thing it is to make your way to the city of Jerusalem. And, but especially in that day, because it represented the presence of God. Now, in our covenant, the presence of God is with us by the Holy Spirit inside of our lives. But nonetheless, we understand the imagery of it, the expectation of it. And they would sing these uh, songs as they would ascend and make their way to Jerusalem. They're called the songs of ascension because no matter where you come to Jerusalem from, you're always ascending, you're always uh, going up because the city of Jerusalem is set upon a series of hills and uh, so it was always to ascend unto jerusalem and so these psalms of ascent; these were the songs of uh, spiritual pilgrims it's really interesting as we remind ourselves related to the psalms that this was the hebrew hymn book um, in a lot of churches not not ours it cost extra money to put seat pockets on the back of the seat so we didn't do it But in a lot of churches you go in, there's a hymnal that's there, a chorus book or something. Well, this book of Psalms was their hymnal. These were the spiritual songs that they sang to God. And God took these different men through all of the various experiences that a pilgrim or a child of God can experience in life. The highs, the lows, everything in between writing songs to God about that experience, what they discovered about God, so that people could then sing these songs of praise and worship and faith and hope and confidence in in God. And so, amazing to think about these psalms that we're going to be reading tonight, uh, 3,000 years old, more or less, and to think about the untold millions of people that have sung these psalms through the ages as they've drew close to Jerusalem and drew close to God in the worship uh, of the Lord and so this uh, great to understand that about these psalms and psalm 20 is a, a cry to God for relief from a warlike tongue <laughs> and uh, So here you have somebody that's in the middle of a difficult situation. They're either where they live in the world is one where um, mankind's use of speech has fallen down to such a level that it's abusive and warlike. There's nothing peaceful about it. Or this person is living in a home or among a family where somebody has that kind of a tongue. I don't know, some of you might have been raised in a home where maybe the mom or the dad, probably most often the dad, could be very, very destructive with his tongue. And if you grow up in an environment like that, uh, you are eager to escape that environment and to find some relief from it. So here you have these spiritual pilgrims, That are making their way to Jerusalem again, coming from all around the world, and some of them in parts of the world where the speech, using speech as a means of violence against somebody else, uh, complete misuse of the gift of speech. And then now here you are, you're coming to Jerusalem, and now as you're approaching Jerusalem with God's people, now you're going, all you're going to hear is the highest use and purpose for speech, to extol God, to pray to God, to talk to one another about the greatness of God. And so as he's thinking about this environment that he's heading into, he thinks about what his context is day in and day out, but thankful for these reprieves from uh, this kind of, of abuse. We live in a world that is um, again, it is falling apart uh, rapidly because of its move away from God. And there's always going to be repercussions for that. So you're going to have physical violence that is going to escalate. And uh, we see that happening. But then we also see happening at the same time the terrible, terrible use of the tongue and speech within the culture. People that would never, ever dream of punching another person or physically violating another person, think nothing of doing it with their speech. And I'll tell you, if you live around that at school, and you live around that at school, or you live around that in a workplace or in a neighborhood uh, or wherever a person might be, a family in the world, you can't wait to come to a place where speech is properly used to exalt God and not use to tear down and destroy people, and that's an interesting thing to think about. You know, we think about gathering together for church. They were coming to Jerusalem; that's where the temple was. That was uh, the temple was uh, spoke of the presence of God, and and so uh, for us that would represent the assembling together of the saints, like we're doing tonight in a church service. And it's interesting to realize that there are people that are. Uh, in this room here tonight that the only reprieve that they have in the course of a week to abusive speech and a warlike tongue is when they come to church in this place. And they get to be surrounded by worship to the Lord the tongues that are being used in an edifying way. And this is what the psalmist felt, and he felt so strongly, Oh, good, I get a break from how the speech is used in the world all around me all day, every day of my life. And one of the things that God did in his life in terms of working all things together for good, and God promises to work all things together for good in our lives, is it gave him an even greater appreciation for coming together to worship the Lord the way that we do, to come together, to speak of the things of the Lord. And so this is the context kind of of this of this particular psalm. In my distress, I cried out to the Lord, and he heard me. Deliver my soul, O Lord, from lying lips and from a deceitful tongue. And so he is somebody that's lying about him, and uh, that's of course, is a very, very a painful experience i mean i don't we don't like anybody to say the truth about us if it's derogatory but then to have somebody just make lies up uh, about you all of the time their speech is used in that way it really can wear you out and then he declares what shall be given to you or what shall be done to you, O false tongue? As he speaks of, to his kind of chief uh, antagonist, he said, sharp arrows of the warrior with coals uh, of the broom tree. And so he's, he's calling on God to bring uh, a retribution against the tongue uh, and the violence of this person's speech. And the sharp arrow speaks of retribution or God giving them what they're due, the coals of the broom tree. The broom tree was used for firewood because it burned longer than other woods, and that uh, types of wood in that part of the world. And so the psalmist is predicting here that that man's mouth, uh, not that it would be washed out with soap, but that God would burn their mouth and cleanse it and purify it. How many of you have had the pleasure of having your mouth washed out with soap? Just a quick throw of hands. Yes. So I suppose it's a little old-fashioned. I don't think it should go out. Of it etches in your memory. I do remember the first time. I don't know what, how, what they made soap out of in those days, but, boy, that was there a long time. <laughs> so he's praying for something a little bit stronger than that. God, bring fire into this person's life that purifies and um, Silences their tongue. He said, Woe is me, for I dwell in Meshach, that I dwell among the tents of Kedar. So here he is. It is an indication that he is living among the Gentiles um, for most of the year. And he is making this pilgrimage now to Jerusalem. So his portion is to be like uh, most of you in this room where you are living among the world. You are in these places where the world is what it is and you uh, have to listen to it and, and it's going on all around you. That was his portion. He said, My soul has dwelt too long with one who hates peace. I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. And so this psalm that he writes again uh, expressing, the context of it is expressing his appreciation for, man, this is what I got to be around all day, every day, and praise the Lord that I get to come to church and uh, be uh, have a break from it. And it's a beautiful thing if you've ever been raised in or you're part of a marriage or part of a situation where someone is just a violent person with their speech. In Psalm 121, is a psalm that speaks of the fact that our help comes from the Lord, that He's our helper, and He's our keeper, and our, He's our preserver. I will lift up my eyes to the hills. So here's somebody that's in need of help. He's in the middle of a trial, and he's looking for a deliverer or for deliver, and deliverance from the trial that he's in. I'll lift my eyes to the hills. From whence comes my help? And again, he's making his way toward Jerusalem, he said, my help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. And so here he is. He's in this uh, situation again where he's having difficulty in the world of some kind. He's, uh, he, he's got... Um, you know trials that are going on around him he's in need of deliverance he's in need of of help and he says from whence comes my help I need help my help comes from the Lord and he says not only from the Lord but who made heaven and earth how good is that help? (laughs) that's pretty good help that's pretty good help I remember speaking about a trial Related to this, and the Lord brought this particular passage to me, and uh, in the midst of it, and you know, the situations and the circumstances we can find ourselves in can be so big, they so overwhelm our resources, we can almost think we're never going to get out of this. And then the Lord reminds us that the one who helps us is the one who made the heaven and the earth if you can make the heaven and the earth then you're bigger than any situation that we're going to face I'll tell you it brought great peace uh, to my uh, heart he says uh, and so you see in verse 1 the word help, it's worth circling 2 the ver- word help so the Lord is our helper and then he moves on to speak of the Lord as our keeper he, who, he will not allow your foot to be moved. Now, unto him who is able to keep you from falling, to present you faultless before the Lord in that day, Jude 24. The Lord will not allow your foot to be moved. The world's a slippery place, spiritually, morally, but God will keep our feet in a sure footedness. He will make sure that ha- happens. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel shall neither slumber nor sleep. Now, that's a good thing to, to think about when you go to sleep at night, huh? Here we've got this thing going on, this big situation or whatever, and the, and the Lord wants to remind us that he who keeps us, he never has to sleep. Isn't it amazing how we have to sleep as human beings? Some people they strive against it, of a grandson like this. Fight against the sleep. Me, I like sleep. Where's the bed? But we've got to get, you know, somewhere between six and nine hours of sleep a night, depending on your metabolism and all. The Lord never sleeps. So he is our keeper. Hey, listen, a keeper is only good if he's able to keep his eyes open and and he's not asleep for eight hours a day. The Lord is our keeper. He shall, neither, he shall neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. In other words, He's a keeper who's near at hand. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. He's aware of everything that happens. He knows every. He knows when the sun is coming on us. He knows when the moon is coming on us, and then he goes on to speak of the Lord as his preserver. The Lord shall preserve you from all evil. That's he's going to guard us. He shall preserve your soul. The Lord shall preserve your going out. Your you're going out and you're coming in. That means every time you go in and out the front door. I think this is great for kids. When you're kind of in the summertime and you're at home, like with adults, you know, like we are now, we go out in the morning, early in the morning, and then we come back late afternoon, early evening. So there's not a lot of coming and going from the house. Summertime with kids, stop slamming that screen door. In and out and in and out and in and out and in and out. And even something as, you know, Uh, constant as that, as uneventful as that, our coming and going in life, the Lord is aware of our circumstances, where we are, every little detail in our life, and He preserves us from this time forth and even forevermore. He is always going to be our help, always going to be our keeper, and always be our protector Forever and ever and ever. Now that's a good thing for pilgrims to remember. And that's what these were. These were spiritual pilgrims. I don't know about you, but I feel very far from home. This world is not my home. You say, "Well, well I mean, that's kind of the Christian thing to say, isn't it?" You no, know, I mean, and pastors ought to say it. This world is not my home. If I wasn't a pastor, and every day it gets stranger and stranger to me. Partly because the world is getting stranger and stranger, and partly because every day I draw a little closer to the Lord. And so it's good to be reminded of the fact that while we are here so far from home, heaven is our home, that he is going to be our helper, our keeper, and our preserver. Beautiful, beautiful psalm to remind us of, of those realities in our lives I'll be with you in a moment Psalm 122 here's a psalm that speaks of the psalmist love for the house of the Lord and so again here is this a psalm uh, uh, one of the psalms of ascent and uh As he's drawing closer to Jerusalem, he praises Jerusalem, he extols Jerusalem for the simple reason that Jerusalem is the site of the temple. The temple represented the presence of God. It was the place to go and worship. For us, it is the assembling together of the saints, as the writer of the book of Hebrews says, like what we're doing here tonight so he declares i was glad when they said to me let us go into the house of the lord you know you can we've got that old course that was uh, went to this i was glad when they said let us go into the house of the lord you see why i am not on the worship team but but here Here's this excitement as they're coming to Jerusalem. They're excited about the fact that they're coming to the house of the Lord. And it would, this speaks of us in our covenant to going to church. That word glad in verse one is interesting. I was glad. And, and that word glad is a little bit understated in the English for the Hebrew word. The word literally means to delight, to be elated. And the idea is that the writer of this psalm is so uh, excited uh, about coming to church to worship the Lord, that they need to, f- they feel a need to make an outward expression of that joy. And so we speak of shouting for joy, jumping for joy. That's the kind of excitement that he has and he's feeling about coming to worship the Lord and to gather together with God's. Uh, people. And, and we're told what he's glad about. We're not left in the dark related to that. And that is let us go into the house of the Lord. And I like that. It wasn't like, oh, is yeah, it Sunday already? I gotta go to church again. Alright, it's my duty as a Christian. Let's get, get those kids come on get them in there we're already going to be 15 minutes late I don't know why we bother how'd you like to pastor that church there's an excitement about going to church I can't wait to get to church you say yeah you do all the talking no it does not have anything to do with that you <laughs> you probably don't have anyone that listened to you all through the week so you get to come here and do that I wish I had a whole group of people that listened to me for three hours on a given Sunday it's not that I can't wait to get to church and to be with you, to be among God's people. And I need it and I love it more than I ever have. And I have always, always loved it. I'll tell you, we need it. And I think as the the world continues to become what it's going to become, as the return of the Lord approaches, we're going to have even a greater and greater excitement for coming together to worship the Lord and grow in His Word and grow in our relationships with one another. And really, where there isn't an excitement for coming together in this way, something's wrong. There's something wrong in my relationship with my, the Lord and understanding what my needs are and maybe need to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. That's a great cure for a lot of different things. But here's this excitement about coming to the Lord. I can't, uh, coming to church, I can't wait to. He says, our feet shall be standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. I can't believe it. I'm coming to Jerusalem. I can't believe it. I'm coming to the courtyard at Calvary Chapel, Modesto. You say, you're stretching it now. I don't know. just depends on what the Holy Spirit has done in our lives, whatever the church might be. Of assembling together of the saints, he said, "Jerusalem is built as a city that is compact together, and it is. It's a tight little small city, especially in those days, built right into the mountains that uh, make up the city." He says, "Where the tribes go up, the tribes." of the Lord. And so he begins to think about the things that he is enjoying as he comes together for worship. He's thankful for all of the other tribes of Israel that are coming together, all the diversity of the body of Christ and the Jewish people coming to Israel. We gather together like this, Jew, Gentile, every male, female, every kind of, every hyphenated whatever related to mankind in the world. And here God assembles us together to worship him. And to just be, what an encouragement it is to our faith. Sometimes the devil just gets, to, wants to get us off in a corner and just, just pound the living daylights out of us. And sometimes he can really begin to make some inroads. And then you come together, get to church, you don't even know how you got to church, and you look around and you see all of these other people that look like you and don't look like you, and you know they're going through the same things that you are, and they're approaching it with faith and with joy and all, and it becomes contagious in our lives. And then and then, things all of a sudden, they change for us where we just re- we just appreciate how big the body of Christ is all around the world. Another people's love for one another. We really do need each other. He said, where the tribes go up, the the tribes of Israel, and then he talks about them going up to the testimony of Israel. The testimony of Israel refers to the Ten Commandments. It speaks of the Word of God, his excitement of coming to the temple in order to uh, worship the Lord in growing in his knowledge of the Word of God to give thanks to the name of the Lord. He can't wait to worship the Lord, give him praise, give him thanksgiving. It's wonderful to do it alone, but it's so wonderful to do it together. For thrones are set there for judgment, the thrones of the house of David. And then he said, pray for the peace of Jerusalem, that they may prosper who love you. Now, this is interesting, and it's a good I think it's good instruction for us. He prays for the location of his church. He prays for his church, so to speak. He prays for his worship center, which happens to be Jerusalem. He is so thankful for how God has used Jerusalem, the temple, the assembling together of the saints so powerfully in his life. And again, I want to remind you that, and you may be one of those people, there is a whole world of people that the only peace and the only um, spiritual edification that they're able to draw even off of other people, you know, and all. That all happens when they come to church. There's not one other place in their life that any of that happens. Yes, they have their own relationship with the Lord, but to realize what this means to so many people to come together at church. And so he says, listen, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Pray for Calvary Chapel in Modesto. Pray for the church that you attend and pray for it to be a place of peace. Not all churches are marked by peace. I'm thankful that this one is. We give the Lord praise for that. But to pray for the peace of that environment and that they may prosper who love you. To pray, God, would you prosper these brothers and sisters that I sit around week in and week out. Bless them in their relationship with the Lord. Bless Calvary Chapel as it endeavors to be what you've called it to be in the city of Modesto and around the world. And to pray for God to prosper the fellowship. Peace be within your walls, prosperity within your palaces. For the sake of my brethren and companions, I will now say, Peace be within you, because of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. And so this beautiful, beautiful psalm, expressing the psalmist, Love for the house of the Lord. Thank you so much for your love for the Lord. Thank you so much for your love for Christian fellowship. And I just want to say thank you for the place that you play in making this church what it needs to be. You say, oh, you, listen, Damien, it doesn't become you to flatter. Just, I'm not doing that. I'm not above it, but I'm not doing that. And I don't usually do that. I have a friend by the name of Lee Shaw. He's a chaplain in Napa, California. And sometimes he would talk about people that just thought they were nothing. I'm a nothing Christian. I'm a, nothing. I'm a nobody. I mean, nobody cares. Nobody knows. what well, I'm not making any kind of a difference. And he would say that kind of a person that he says, just Oh, listen, I'm nothing. I'm just dirt under the toenail of the body of Christ. A little sacrilegious, actually. But never believe that about yourself. Never believe it. I believe that God when he is allowed by his Holy Spirit to put a church together. He picks, he chooses, he puts it together and every single person brings something to that fellowship. And the church would not be complete without that which each person brings. I mean, it's like a chemistry project. It's fascinating how he does that. And, and each of us have a part in a church being what God wants it to be in the community that he places it in. Psalm 123, another psalm, just beautiful, and it's a psalm that reminds us as pilgrims that mercy is coming. Sometimes you just need to know that in the pilgrimage, don't we? On our way to heaven, mercy is coming. And so the psalmist said, Unto you, speaking to the Lord, I will lift up my eyes. So what's the old saying? When the outlook is bad, try the uplook. Hey, it's not bad. That's what he does. Unto you I lift up my eyes, who, oh you who dwell in the heavens. Behold, as the servants, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their masters, as the eyes of a maid to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God until he has mercy on us. Now, in the ancient world, if you were a wealthy man and you owned servants, or or you were like a princess or a queen and you had handmaids and that kind of a thing, but let's just kind of picture yourself in like a Bedouin tent of some kind and you're a rich tribal leader or something. In that kind of a context, if you were you'd have this great large tent and You would invite other leaders of other tribes. You would be hosting uh, significant kind of feasts and all this kind of thing. And you would have a number of servants that would uh, serve you to accomplish that. Well, you wouldn't want to interrupt every time you wanted a servant to do something. you got people talking all around, cons- significant conversations happening, and you wouldn't want to say, okay, bring the tea now, or bring us some more hummus, or we'd like a little more pita bread, or whatever the deal might be, bring us some water to rinse our hands with. It would be the constant interruption that would be going on. And so what they would do is that they would devise a means of signals where the master of the house, he would give a signal with his hand that the servant would always have his eyes on the hand of the master, and it was just like a baseball game. He would, he would make the signal, and you would know without a word to get up and go bring in more tea or whatever it might be, or coffee that was, that was being requested. So there was that kind of being glued onto the hands of the master. And here the psalmist uses the imagery of us keeping our eyes on the Lord until mercy comes. There's a lot of times when we need, all the time, we need mercy as God's uh, uh, people. And the idea is here as we look to the Lord, Lord, here's the greatness of my need. I am in need of mercy. And when we're looking to his hands, as the psalmist tells us here, then the realization is, is that mercy is coming. It's not a matter of if. It's just a matter of when. And so he's saying when we need mercy, keep our eyes on the Lord. Because it's not a matter of whether mercy is coming in our situation from God. It's just a matter of when that is uh, is going to happen. He said, have mercy on us, O Lord. Have mercy on us. There's an exclamation point there. You know, if everything's kind of going great in our life, and we're a little fat and sassy spiritually tonight, and all, was so, like, yeah, have mercy. Then you find yourself in a place that we can sometimes find ourselves in. Have mercy on us, Lord. Have mercy on us. I mean, there's that kind of an urgency, for we are exceedingly filled with contempt. Speaking about the world mocking them for their faith in God and their righteous life. Our soul is exceedingly filled with the scorn of those who are at ease. Again, people making fun of their faith in God. That's one thing if people make, when people make fun of our faith in God behind our backs. It still goes on, but at least we don't experience the hurt of knowing that it's going on. It's a doubly, triply hurtful thing when people express it right to us when the culture becomes so debased and so godless and so arrogant and so proud that they now feel emboldened to mock and show contempt toward people who have faith in God and a relationship with God and and that, that's a very difficult circumstance. But it's been the portion of God's people all through the ages. And so our soul, he said, is exceedingly filled with the scorn of those who are at ease with the contempt of the proud. And yet in the midst of it, he cries out for mercy and with the confidence and with the knowledge that mercy is coming. Now, one of the things that's kind of interesting in the world that we live in, and sometimes Christians are, you know, we've never been at a time like this really in the United States because we do have a judeo-christian ethic and, and a bible basis for our nation and a godly heritage and all so the move away from god is very very strong and, um, and it can create an anxiousness within us sometimes and we think where is this going to go what is it going to mean to be a christian if the lord tarries in 2014 15 20 25 whatever it might be no matter what no matter what happens in this world? God has mercy that is greater still. Sometimes people, through the ever since I've been a, was a brand new Christian, people would always uh, one of the things that I have heard over and over and over again now for thirty plus years is how come all of the miracles that we read about in the Bible we don't see those happening every day in the church. Or we don't see that happening in the United States with that kind of a frequency and all. Well, sometimes a person needs to pull back and realize, I mean, there were a lot of miracles recorded in the Bible. And I have no doubt that there were zillion times more miracles that God did in the early church that were never recorded in the Bible. But the book of Acts is a record of a very long period of decades in church history. And so sometimes people see it all compacted and think every service somebody needs to be raised from the dead, even if we have to kill somebody during the service to raise them from the dead. But I do think that whatever happens and however difficult things might become in terms of persecution toward us as Christians, just remember, God's source of mercy is infinitely greater than anything that we will ever face. And we may see uh, miracles that we have mostly heard happening in other parts of the world, happening in our midst in a greater measure as Christians because the United States of America is spiritually becoming like those other parts of the world in their spiritual darkness and idolatry. But the reassurance of it God's grace is greater still, His mercy is greater still, His love is greater still, His faithfulness is greater still. He will always supply into our lives much more of His resources that that we need than ever the world might bring against us in terms of persecution or contempt. It actually could be very, very exciting in terms of what we might see between now and the rapture, and just terms of the the miraculous that uh, might become more and more commonplace for us in the body of Christ. In, In Psalm 124, here's a meditation on the fact that we owe everything, including our very lives, to the fact that God is on our side. I love this psalm. Well, I love all of them, but I'm teaching this one. So he says, if it had not been for the Lord, that's a sobering thought. You think about your own life. You say, if it hadn't been for the Lord, my life would be, ooh, don't even want to think about it. I don't want to think about it. He said, if it had not been for the Lord who was on our side. Let Israel say, if it had not been for the Lord who was on our side. It's almost like a psalmist is writing the psalm and he's thinking about, if it had not been for the Lord related to his life, and then he begins to think about, what would my life be apart from the Lord? And he gets a little bit disoriented and he starts repeating himself. You ever get in a conversation where somebody says something to you and it so sends your mind off in a particular direction to think about things that you actually kind of turn out and you get a little bit disoriented because that thought is just demanding everything of your mind just to come to grips with it. And that's one of those kind of things. I don't want to even think about who I would be, what I would be, where I would be in life apart from the Lord. I do know this, that I'm stupid enough that I can stand confidently before you that I would have thrown away every valuable thing in my life if I had not come to the Lord to have Him teach me what is truly valuable in life. I would have destroyed my life and every life associated with mine. And that's being conservative. You say, boy, I don't... I think I need to find another church. Well, I have a hunch that's kind of going around in terms of what pastors are like and people are like. But I love that. If it had not been for the Lord who was on our side, let Israel now say, if it had not been for the Lord who was on our side, when men rose up against us, this would have been the result. Then they would have swallowed us alive when their wrath was kindled against us. Now you think about the Jews. The psalmist is a Jew, and he is thinking about the Jewish people. If it had not been for the Lord, what would have happened to the Jewish people? Well, they simply wouldn't exist. He says, we would have been swallowed up. And the idea is of like hyenas coming on a zebra or some kind of a wild animal that's been brought down, and they just tear it to pieces. We'd have been torn to pieces by the world or the flesh or the devil by now then the waters would have uh, overwhelmed us the stream would have gone over our soul we would have drowned both you know physically and spiritually then the waters would have gone up over our soul he said we'd have never survived we'd be dead apart from the lord and the fact that he keeps us And then he ends the psalm with his praise uh, to uh, the Lord for his deliverances in their lives. Blessed be the Lord who has not given us as a prey to their teeth. Our uh, Our soul has escaped as a bird from the snare of the fowlers. The snare is broken and we have escaped. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. The very fact of our existence and that we are alive in this room, we owe to the fact that the Lord has been our help. How many of you know, and you could raise your hand or not raise your hand. Well, that's a pretty clumsy way to introduce that, isn't it? I'm not going to find out what's the use of it if everybody doesn't raise their hand. Okay, I want everybody up out of your seats. Let's do a Jericho march quick around the Just kidding. How many of you can look to your pre-Christian days, to before you came to the Lord, and you can look back and you say, I know God supernaturally kept me alive for the day that I would trust in Him. I'll tell you, I believe that about myself. And I believe it about you. And I believe it about you that didn't raise your hands. (laughs) The deliverance that He has given to us all through the ages his protection. We owe everything to the Lord, and it's wonderful. And then in Psalm 125, there's a psalm about the fact, a reminder that the Lord surrounds his people. Those who trust in the Lord, that's God's people, they're like Mount Zion. Mount Zion is one of uh, the mountains of Jerusalem that the temple was built kind of right uh, toward and into. And so he comes up And the the pilgrims, again, this is a psalm of ascent. The pilgrims would come up into Jerusalem. They would come over the crest of one of these mountains. There would be Jerusalem built into the mountains, the temple built there as well. And as he looked at how wonderfully surrounded the temple was by those mountains and how secure it was as a result of it, the psalmist's mind can only go to think about the fact that God is not only that to Jerusalem, but that he is that to our lives as well. Those who trust in the Lord, us as people, are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved but abides forever. God has brought a stability to our life that we wouldn't otherwise enjoy. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his People from this time forth and forevermore. And so, the fact that the Lord, we are stable, He surrounds us, we are safe. And all of that is because of the Lord's presence in our life, His faithfulness to His promises in our life. And then He expressed His uh, prayer uh, to, that wickedness would not rule in Israel as He thinks about how blessed. Uh, God's people are. He thinks about how wonderful it is to come to the temple to worship and he realizes all of this could be destroyed by an evil king who would allow wickedness to rise up uh, within the nation and that become the norm or that become the attractive thing and all of these great things would be lost. This is why as we're talking this morning about the local church, talking about Corinth and a and church becoming... Uh, influenced by the world rather than being an influencer uh, to the world is a very significant thing for a church to be hijacked in any way and then to be removed from God's people and then become something that isn't about God that isn't about holiness that isn't about the worship of the Lord And, you know, that kind of thing can happen in one meeting in a church among leadership. If their heads aren't screwed on straight and their heart isn't right before the Lord, the whole thing can be yanked out from underneath an entire congregation in a five-minute meeting. It's terrible. It can happen. And so here is the psalmist as he looks at the blessing of Jerusalem, the worship experience that he's having at his church, so to speak. He prays that wickedness will not get a foothold in this and that this wonderful, beautiful, necessary thing that is there for God's people will not be ruined and be destroyed. It's a good prayer. It's a very good prayer. And so he said, "For the scepter of of wickedness shall not rest on the land allotted to the righteous, lest the righteous reach out their hands to iniquity." God, do not allow the scepter or of wickedness or wickedness to come into power that would supplant the righteous in among your people or in a church for our application. And in, as a part of this prayer, that God would not allow that to happen, but that he would protect the worship environments of his people, he then asked the Lord to reward the righteous, reward good, and judge the wicked or unrighteousness. Do good, O Lord, to those who are good and to those who are upright in their hearts. In a church like this, it would be, Lord, Just do good and bless and prosper those that walk with you, that love you, that serve you, that obey you. Bless their lives. Give them the place of influence in this church. And then he goes on to say, for as such as turn aside to their crooked ways, speaking of uh, the wicked, the Lord shall lead them away with the workers of iniquity. So he asks the Lord to uh, judge wickedness, and then he closes the psalm with a prayer uh, for God's peace to be upon Israel. And so uh, this prayer that God would protect His work, His worship environment or environments in the world by judging the wicked and not allowing them to take over what belongs to God and should always belong to God. And so a beautiful psalm where there's just that... Again, all the way through these psalms, there is this heading to church. There is this heading to the assembling together of the saints and worshiping the Lord and an appreciation for it and then a prayer that all of that would continue and that nothing would disrupt it. I know for me, and I I know I speak for the pastoral staff in this church, think about the world that we live in is there anything sure about it to you <laughs> no. people that have billions of dollars they cannot find a place that they can put that money and be at rest about it people who have 50 cents can't find a place to put that 50 cents and be at rest about it the whole thing is all topsy turvy it is what it is but god is greater than all of that but the one thing that we recognize when the world gets in that condition and it's going to only become more and more unstable as, until the Lord comes back and he raptures us out of here and the one thing we can lose all kinds of things in all direction but the one thing that we recognize that we need as God's people is that the place that we come to worship the Lord that their church not be changed on the people and that it not be yanked out from under them. It's the worst thing that you can do to people is to take what should be the one area of unfailing stability in their life and then cause that to shake like everything else in the world. And we look at this with that kind of a sobriety because we know what the church, the assembling together of the saints, means to us on a weekly and through-the-week basis. So I think all of us, we really understand and recognize the love of the psalmist here for the things of the Lord, the worship of the Lord, the corporate worship experience. And it's a beautiful thing to see that in someone 3,000 years ago in their relationship with the Lord and have the Holy Spirit say in our hearts, yes, we come to love and appreciate those very same things in our life as well. Praise the Lord. Not only for being saved, there's an individual side of Christianity. Only I can put my faith in Christ for my salvation. Only I can make individual decisions whether I'm going to obey the Lord or not. But then there is a whole corporate element of this and how we need one another and how wonderful a local church is, whether it's this church or any other church we find, go in the world, how wonderful it is to be able to come into a place, sense the presence of the Lord and realize, I am with family. I think many of us have experienced that. You go clear over here on a business trip or you go over here on a vacation or over here on a what and you're in the middle of what and then you say, where is a church in this town? And you walk in and you go, I feel the same thing here. I feel back at home. And we're among the same family. Well, I love it. And I'm rambling now, but not mindlessly. Just rambling. There is a difference. I reserve the right to mindlessly ramble later on in my life but i'm so thankful that i just keep talking about how wonderful it is because of what it means to me so let's continue our worship of the lord let's have the worship team come forward and lead us in some worship as we close our service this evening another opportunity to just give him praise and give him thanks that he is so worthy of and so do